Would you turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Nehemiah chapter 4? We have been doing a, a, a chapter by chapter, verse by verse study of this book. Um, we really took a little bit, have been taking a little bit of a different tack in how we're looking at it. Most uh, commentaries and teachings talk about Nehemiah as a great leader, which he was, but uh, what we've been focusing on really is the issue of starting over. That's why we call it that, because Nehemiah begins after Jerusalem and Judah have been completely decimated and destroyed. Everything is gone, and he starts the process of rebuilding. And some of us have that history in our own life. We know those experiences of suddenly losing everything and having to start all over. And it's a daunting task, one that sometimes we, we get so discouraged we give up on. And so there's great things, I think, to learn in seeing how Nehemiah and the Jews overcame their obstacle and rebuilt their lives and that we can learn from and glean from. So we're in chapter 4. We're picking it up in verse 16. If you don't mind, would you stand with me as we begin by reading on through to the end of the chapter? They're in the process, obviously, of rebuilding the wall. Um, they face some tremendous discouragement in the process, and that's where it picks on where they begin to have to deal with outward threats. It says, from that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. And those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. And then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. And so we continued to work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. And at that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and workmen by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask as we look to your word this morning that you would help us. Help us to not only understand the story, but and understand how it is meant to become part of our story. How that you want to write these things, imprinting them on our hearts so that the truths become operative in our life, Lord. Not just something that we know intellectually, but something we experience experientially, Lord. Grant us this grace, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever had your plans go wrong, go awry, fall apart? If you haven't, you're a liar and you can leave now. Uh, uh, it's just simply a part of life, you know, and there's lots of reasons for it. I mean, we live in a fallen, broken world uh, that on one hand, you look at the amazing majesty and, and mechanism of nature itself, how perfectly it works, and yet at the same time, there's always this interruption of decay and things falling apart and breaking. And that's why sometimes the best laid plans can go completely flat because of things that were unforeseen. We didn't see it coming. We didn't anticipate it. I remember when we were doing, uh, you know, tw two trips a year, taking 50 or 60 people to Russia on outreaches uh, every time, and we worked each time to make sure that we had strategized and planned for any eventuality or problem that might arise, and it didn't matter how well we orchestrated it, there was always something that came up that we had never encountered before, so that we never got it to the place where it was seamless and you had no problems you always found that this is almost built into the way the universe works. Make plans and count on them going wrong. There are two biblical terms that we often use interchangeably that play into this whole dynamic. And sometimes we use them in a way as if they're the same meaning, but actually they're equally important, but they're very, very different. The first one is the word vid diligence. And diligence simply means careful working. 
In other words, a person who is diligent is basically uh, giving full attention to doing what they're doing and striving to do it as well as they possibly can. A diligent person is saying, what I am doing is important and it's worthy of my best effort and interest. A vigilant person, on the other hand, is someone who is not careful working per se, but careful watching. They're looking for any possible danger or threat that might come their way. Now, we understand diligence is important because it's the only way that we get things done and it's the only way we can get things done correctly. That's why Paul exhorted the Corinthians and us by application when he said in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, unshaken, always diligent in the Lord's work. In fact, it's a phrase that's repeated in various ways throughout the New Testament, constantly reminding, be diligent. In other words, understand what the work is, be faithful to follow through, and don't give up when it gets hard. But in contrast, vigilance is really clearly illustrated by the story that we just read. When he says to us about building the wall that those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders had his sword at his side as he worked. These are people who essentially are being both diligent and vigilant. And their vigilance was necessary because we read last time in verse 11 where they said that our enemies have said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Now, what's important for us to understand in the story is that it's not like Nehemiah didn't have enough to occupy his energy and his mind. Previously, we talked about having to deal with just the discouragement that comes from an arduous work, that people were subject to uh, fatigue because they were working so hard. They were subject to frustration because if you've ever done any remodeling work, one of the things you discover is when you begin to tear down or open up walls, you see the work that the other guy didn't do right. And, and suddenly, this is going to be a lot more complicated than I had thought. And you find it takes more time. That's why when we've talked about building projects around here over the years, I've said there's one formula we need to apply. It's going to cost us twice as much as we think and take three times as long. That's just the nature of it, right? That's the way it works. So those of you who are in the trades know what I'm talking about, and you've probably learned to bid that out because you lost your shirt a few times. But the bottom line is, the last thing he needed was another layer of difficulty on an already difficult task. And yet, essentially, they're not simply going constantly working. Now they often, at the same time, have to be constantly watching. How good are you at multitasking? Well, if you're a woman, I don't know. But if you're a guy, I can tell you easily, not at all. We don't multitask well, and I, I realize that. I mean, it's one of those kind of things. The other day, last night, in fact, my wife was saying, would you look this up on, on Google? So I'm doing this Google search for some kind of information. And then she starts talking about something else to me at the same time. I'm done. <laughs> I mean, I have to stop. It's like, wait a minute, you know, I, I can't listen to what you're saying and do this. I can pretend like I'm listening to what you're saying, and that always gets me in trouble. So I don't want to do that, but I can't do both because I'm just, I just have this deficiency. And the real reality is studies have found we aren't good at multitasking no matter what we try to say. Something falls in arrears. Something gets the lower priority. So that the reality is if you want to do something well, you need to really focus on that and really try to set aside all the other things that are going on. But saying that, what do you do when you're in a situation where you have no choice? Suddenly they're confronted. We have to be working and we have to be watching. There's no option here because if we don't watch, we may get hindered in a way like deadly way that'll keep us from working. So we're forced into a greater stressful situation. You know, from a non-Christian point of view, this kind of all makes sense. I mean, they, even the non-Christians observe this is the way the world works. I think it's so funny, that, uh, or really tragic in many ways, that John Lennon once said that life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. The reality is, as he's making his way to his apartment at the Dakota uh, Hotel, he had plans in his mind that what he was going to do in the next moment when a young man came up and murdered him on the street. And that's kind of the tragic expression of someone who would say that, but nonetheless, that is true. 
That is true, that I know that the day I die, I will be busy planning something else, and that it happens. And so rarely do we get a chance to even plan for that. But Dwight Eisenhower, who served as a lieutenant in World War I uh, and was the uh, supreme commander of Allied forces in World War II uh, and then the 34th president of the United States, he once said that everyone has a plan until the shooting starts. And this is a man who certainly understood that dynamic better than you and I would ever have known it. He says, you can have a great plan, but once it becomes dangerous, it's really hard to stay focused. In fact, Mike Tyson probably summarized the issue better than anybody else I ever heard. And he said this from a boxer's perspective. He says, everybody has a plan until they get hit. (laughs) And he says, then like a rat, they stop in fear and freeze. I mean, he understood, he had to discipline himself as a fighter to be able to say, when I get hit, I have to resist the instinct to freeze and to become fearful. I have to push through that. And in a way, that's what Nehemiah found himself confronted with with this group of people. I know that in his heart, as soon as the threats on his own life begin to pour in, not not to mention everybody else's, but his own life, that he's being personally targeted, that has to have a staggering effect upon you. Your natural instinct is to freeze, to step back and go, okay, what should I do? And at that point, he had to make a decision. Are we going to continue to move forward or are we going to allow ourselves to be dominated by our fear and flee from the threat that lies in front of us? Because things happen. I remember once I was at the airport renting a car and the gentleman was trying to sell me all the extra insurance that they often offer. And I jokingly responded to him. and says, I don't think I need it. I'm not planning on having an accident. And he very cleverly responded, that's why they call it an accident. <laughs> that's the whole point. Things are going to happen. So how do you respond when they do? Do you flee or do you freeze? You know, for spiritual-minded people, or at least people who are aware of the spiritual dynamics, especially of the Christian life, you come to realize that broken plans are often the way in which God works. The truth is they're only broken for you. They're not broken for God. He isn't caught by surprise that the plan isn't unfolding as you thought it was going to unfold. He is quite aware of that. In fact, I believe He does it on purpose For those of you who think, well, next time I'm going to plan better, I think he does it on purpose for his own reasons. Let me give you some examples. We read in the book, 14th chapter of the book of Exodus about Moses leading the children out of Egypt. And he, you know, there were really a couple of different directions he could have gone. He could have taken the road that led to Canaan and within a few days been in the land, or he could take the road that nobody would have taken, going straight out into the desert where he would eventually encounter a geographical barrier called the Red Sea. On the surface, I mean, I'm thankful they didn't have aerial drones at the time because we would be getting the reports that Moses has lost and had probably lost his mind as well. But they reach the Red Sea, and now here we are, and suddenly they are troubled by a secondary event. They can see the dust of cloud coming their direction. They can feel the rumble of horses' hoofs and chariots' wheels vibrating through the soil. And as they're having this sensation, they're also aware of the fact that Pharaoh is on his way. He's not coming to tell them that they left something behind. He's coming to kill them. He's coming to annihilate them. It's genocide that's on his mind. And at that moment, the people reacted the way people react. They say to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? Didn't we, have, didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert And then Moses answers the people. He says, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see deliverance of the Lord that he will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Now, to any reasonable man, he's going to listen to that and saying, he really is insane. I mean, it's just not possible. What he's saying is just, what do you mean we'll never see them again? And the Lord will fight for us, and on and on it goes. 
And yet, Moses obviously was hearing from God. To what degree did Moses believe in his heart? I don't know. But he said it. And we know the rest of the story, don't we? That God parted the waters and they went across. And then when the Pharaoh and his army pursued after him, the waters closed and destroyed the army of Pharaoh. And what do you know? God fought for them and they never saw the Egyptians again. And suddenly, the people who were on the other side of the Red Sea were in a totally different emotional state than the ones who were previously on on the close side. They went through this change, they had this experience, and what transpired in them personally? They became worshipers of God, at least to a degree that they had not been previously. The story of Gideon is another one of these stories. I I, I love the story of Gideon. Uh, Here God calls him to to deliver Israel from the invasions of of the Midianites, And right from the very beginning, it's an unfair fight. I mean, Midianites are 120,000. They have the most advanced warfare or or technology of the day. They had camels, war camels. They had weaponry. They were trained. They were experienced. And there were just a whole bunch of them. And so he calls for the tribes of Israel to gather together to form an army. And 32,000 men show up, which I'm surprised by. But nonetheless, they're still outnumbered five to one. And in military strategy, you know, a five to one ratio guarantees you victory over your enemy. That's the thought. So, I mean, they're they're basically a lost cause at their best. And what is God's response? Um, It's too many. And I love God's formula. Tell everybody who's afraid to go home. (laughs) So what are you left? With the stupid guys. I mean, it's like... (laughs) Who in their right mind wouldn't be afraid? And it says 22,000 went home. And it tells you there was 10,000 Israelites who were mentally challenged. (laughs) And that's your team. And God says, still too many. And you know the story. He pars that down until he's left with 300. And God says, just right. I mean, the odds are so so fantastically large against them that to think that there's any hope of victory, and yet what do we find? That, of course, they defeat the Midianites. But it's interesting what God says in chapter 7, verse 2, why He did it. He says, in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. I want you to know that I am the one who controls the heavens and the earth, And I'm the one who saves you. And I'm the one who fights your battles. And I'm the one who delivers you. I want you to know that experientially. Because I guarantee you, there are lots of people walking around saying it verbally, but had never had to make it their own until that moment. When the Israelites were rebuilding the temple, they stopped because of discouragement. And they had all sorts of reasons why they weren't building it. It's not the right time. We don't have enough money. It's, we're not skillful enough. We can't get it done right. And Zechariah the prophet speaks to them and says to them, how, they say, how in the world are we going to accomplish a task? And he says, not by might. In other words, not by your resources, your materials. It's not because of your strength or your efficiency or even the force of your will is not going to get it done. And it's not going to be by your power. Then in other words, it's not your talent your skill set, your great ideas. And you see, that's the problem. They're looking at themselves in light of the challenge. They're saying, we don't have the might, we don't have the power. And God says, you're absolutely right. You don't have the might and you don't have the power. Just like Sanballat said, how are these feeble Jews going to build this wall? And it was a correct estimation of them. They were feeble Jews. that's, That's truth. So how is it going to get done? And his answer is, by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. I'm going to do it by the power of my spirit. That's where it's going to come from. Now, sometimes we aren't real satisfied with that answer, are we? We, We're we're looking for something a little more tangible, something with a a Benjamin Franklin's face on it or something like that. That's, that's, I want a Benjamin. That, That would answer my question. A whole stack of them would answer a whole lot of questions, you know. That's how God needs to do it. When I have it in hand, then I'll know that I can do it. But there are times where God calls us into these vacant spaces. Why? Well, Paul tells us from his own story in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 
Listen to what he says in verse 8. It's going to be on the screen. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, but about the hardships that we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. In other words, we got really depressed. And then he adds, But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. You see, that's the same truth in every one of these stories that I've given you, and we see it repeated over and over again, that we might not rely on ourselves, but rely upon God. And that's why as I look at Nehemiah's response to the challenge, it almost makes me chuckle. What he does, like an airline pilot who's gotten off course, he makes a course correction. You know, the destination is the same. At the end of the day, the wall has to be built. The gates have to be set. So he's not going away from what God calls him, but he realizes in order to get there, I've got to make a few adjustments. And that's what cracks me up. His adjustments are a joke. First of all, here's what we'll do. We'll have fewer workers working harder. Listen. Half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. So he says, first thing is, okay, half of you guys grab your weapons and stand guard. Now the remaining half get to work. Okay. Secondly, he tells them to work essentially with one hand tied behind their back. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. So even the guys who are carrying materials for the builders, they have a weapon in one hand, and they got one hand open to carry stuff, so they're going to carry half as much. And the guys who are doing the work are going to be encumbered by a sword now hanging from their side as an additional encumbrance. And thirdly, we're just going to work longer hours. He says, we continue the work from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. So now they're working from sunrise to sunset, which in that time of year can be 14, 15, even 16 hours a day, nonstop. And then he adds to it, fourthly, the most adverse conditions. He says, have every man and his neighbor and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so that they can serve as guards by night and workmen by day. So now I, these guys have to stay in Jerusalem. And remember, Jerusalem is mainly rubble. So they're sleeping under the stars in an uncomfortable situation, and also they're not really sleeping. They're sleeping in shifts so that they can take turns being on guard as well. So they're sleep-deprived, they're overworked, and that's why he says, neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water, which tells me they knew it wasn't safe ever. Now, <clears throat> Having people not bathe and not take off their clothes or wash their clothes is not a problem as long as we're all doing it together. You know, if everybody stinks, you don't smell it. But the reality is, it just gets gross after a while. In short, here's his plan. Fewer workers working longer hours for less pay. It's not enough just to be diligent. You also have to be vigilant. And in a way, that's something that's true for you and I as well. That when Mike was sharing about the spiritual warfare, you know, it's, it's often the th part of, the of, of serving God and walking with God that we don't anticipate. We don't anticipate that it's more than just working with all of our heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. It's also working harder than we've ever worked hard in our life, but having to face the force of opposition that does not want you to continue doing the work. And so as we talked about last time, how discouragement is such a, a tremendous battle, but it's spiritual discouragement that's worst of all. It's spiritual discouragement that begins to speak into your head things that simply say with some kind of haunting echo, you're wasting your time, this isn't going to succeed, you're going to be a failure. I remember years ago I had a young guy working with me and, and uh, his, his, his performance was lackadaisical and I sat him down and I said, what's wrong? You just act like you're just going through the motions. And he says, well, to be honest, I think what we're trying to do is going to fail. And when it does, I don't want to have egg in my face. I said, you have some egg right here in your face. 
Really, I mean, it's like it, you, you, can, you can have a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, that's not going to work, so I'm not going to work. Essentially, this is the kind of dynamic that Nehemiah had to confront. And that's why the first thing in anything that you and I do as Christians, whether, we're, whether it's a service to God, to the church, or to our family, or to our employer, anybody else, the first thing we have to really focus on is, are we being diligent? Now, for the most part, most people are diligent. That's not a problem. We understand that I need to work hard to accomplish a goal. The bigger question for us as followers of Christ is, are we being diligent about the right things? One of the scariest questions to ask yourself in life is, when I get to the top of this ladder, am I going to discover it was leaning against the wrong wall? When I get to the top of the hill, was it a hill really that was worth dying for? Or was it just one that I thought would give me some kind of advantage for myself? You see, Jesus asks those kind of haunting questions. Even when he taught his disciples how to pray, he says in Matthew 6.10, he says, this is what should be your prayer. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The very first idol that I have to address in my own life is that what I am committed to by nature is my kingdom and my will. I have a way that I want my life to flow. I have a way that I want everything that I do to flow. And what I find is that often God sabotages that just simply to break that willfulness in me. But that's where we begin by when we begin to really experience the power of God in our life is when we stop saying, this is the way I want it to be, and we instead say, God, your will be done. Let me be involved in building your house, your kingdom, in your way. He goes on, and Jesus goes on in verse 33 of that same chapter, and he says, this is the attitude that gets you there. Seek first, that first means in order of priority and importance. Make the most important thing in your life His kingdom and His righteousness. Don't read righteousness as you know, uh, behavior, but rather as attitude that I am in right relationship with God. That it's His kingdom and me being in agreement. It's the thing that Hudson Taylor said, when God's work is done in God's ways, it will never lack His provision. That when I'm doing the work of God in the way that God wants the work to be done, God's blessing is going to be there. And that's really what it comes down. When I seek first the kingdom of God, I'm saying, God, I want to do your work in your way, not in my way. And that's when he says, if you do that, all these things will be given to you. Anything you need to get the job done will be there. But we have an example of that even in the book of Haggai with when they were rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, or I'd say more accurately, after they had stopped the rebuilding because of discouragement. And the Lord confronts him on it through the prophet Haggai in chapter 1, verse 5. He says, now this is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Why can't we get ahead financially, we say? You expected much, but see, it's turned out to be little. Why? And in their case, he says, because my house, the temple that they were supposed to be building, remains a ruin while each of you is busy with his own house. Now, let's put this in correct perspective. Was it wrong that they were building their own houses? No. Housing is necessary. In fact, in our life, my life, your life, there are a lot of things that we need to do because they're the necessary parts of life. You need to have food, you need to have shelter, you need to have clothing, you need to have transportation. These things are the necessary parts of life. The problem comes is when we give unnecessary attention to necessary things. When my life becomes defined by getting more housing, more food, more shelter, more cars, more pleasure, more I, that becomes the obsession of my life, then I'm giving unnecessary attention. And he, you know what he says? What I will do is I will frustrate that as he did in their case. He said, here's what happens. You wonder why you don't seem to be able to get ahead? And let me even add this. And when you do get ahead, 
you feel dissatisfied with what you got? The guy who wrote the book, The, the Eagles Landed, and the movie's made out of it, I heard him on a radio interview many, many years ago. And the interviewer was asking him, what was the thing that you didn't anticipate when you were first starting out uh, about being, you know, this wealthy, successful uh, writer and so forth? And he said, the thing that disappointed me most is that nobody told me it wouldn't make me happy. <laughs> I thought, man, what an admission. I've reached the pinnacle of my, my goals. I've reached the top of the mountain, and I'm still feeling unsatisfied. Now, I know some of you are sitting here like Tevian, fit on the roof. I know that you know, curses are, uh, riches are a curse, but could you not curse me a little? I, you know, I, I get that dynamic. That's where you're at. You, you've never suffered with great wealth, and so you, <laughs> you usually have the other because that seems to actually grasp us more surely, where we realize that, God, joy doesn't come in the winning and the gaining. Joy comes in the knowing and the experiencing of your presence in our life. So the first thing you have to ask is, you're being diligent, but are you being diligent about the right thing? The second thing is, are you vigilant? Are you on guard? And the reason I say that is I found 15 different places in the New Testament where Jesus and the writers, the other writers of the New Testament talked about being on guard repeatedly in places like Luke 12, 15, where eight times Jesus said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed in that context, because a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Be on your guard. He said, be on your guard about the doctrine of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and all these different things. Be on guard. Be wary of the fact that you are vulnerable to these things if you don't watch for them in your life. And then seven times the New Testament writers said things like what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.14. He says, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Setting up a guard over your own heart, he said, that you don't end up not walking in the grace that God has given you. So the question really becomes, I mean, how do we go about setting a guard on our heart? How do we be, live a vigilant life? And this is where we have a lot to thank Paul for because he actually delineates it with, with a very clear metaphorical illustration when he says to us in Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God. Put on the full armor of God. Now, where did Paul get this image, this illustration from? Well, we know this. We know that at the time he was a prisoner in Rome. He was staying in his own house, but he had guards with him 24-7. They would be in six-hour shifts. Two more guards would come and basically live with Paul. We don't know whether he was chained to them. He may have, may not have been. But these guys were coming into his home every day, and I'm sure they were taking their equipment off as they sat around and sipped tea. And then he saw them putting all their uniforms, all their weaponry in there, what they call the panoplia, uh, the, 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 that a Roman hoplite would wear, this whole outfit that he would put on. They'd see them taking it off and putting it on for two years. And I'm sure that like you and me, sometimes we watch something over and over again and suddenly a spiritual awareness, a, a, an impression, an idea bursts in our mind and we go, oh, I get it, I get it. And Paul lays it out. He says, friends, if we are going to be vigilant in our lives, we need to put on the armor of God. And then he illustrates. He says, first of all, you need to put on the belt of truth. What is the belt of truth? Well, many times we think, well, the Bible is the word of truth, so we need to know the Bible. He actually covers that further on, but that's not what he's talking about. In fact, Psalm 51, 6 probably grasps it best when it says, God desires truth in our innermost parts. I simply referring, learning how to be honest with God. Now, you understand that honesty and truth are not necessarily the same thing. Somebody can be very honest and they're telling you something that isn't true. <laughs> you know, when people reflect their feelings, well, this, these are my honest feelings. Well, I believe that those are your honest feelings, but you're whacked. You know what I mean? It's, it's like we need to make that distinction because truth is really 
exclusively God's. He says in Romans 2, let every man be a liar, but God is true. So as a consequence, when we talk about putting on the belt of truth, we're really saying we're going to allow the Holy Spirit, who also, by the way, is named the Spirit of Truth. We're going to allow the Spirit of Truth to explore us, to invite Him. Search me, O God, as He says in Psalm 139. Show me my heart. Show me the stuff in me. God, I want to open myself up to you. Why is that so critical? Because when you have seen everything and then you've confessed everything, you've really closed the door to a lot of condemnation and attacks from the evil one. We can never be afraid to let God speak into our, into our lives His truth. Secondly, he says, having done that, put on the breastplate of righteousness. What does he mean by righteousness? Again, many people think he's talking about live a morally circumspect life. Please don't say that I just told you not to live a morally circumspect life. I'm not saying that at all. But let me tell you, that's not our righteousness. What is our righteousness? Romans 3.22, righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It comes through faith in Jesus that I am in right relationship with Him. What do I know? My breastplate of righteousness is the realization that my sins have been forgiven and I stand in perfection before God even though I am grossly imperfect, but I have His righteousness covering me, that He has declared me holy and clean. That second, thirdly, he says, put on the gospel of peace. He said, fitting your feet with it. And there's two things that may be applied here. One is the Roman sandal, which was a sandal with spikes on the bottom of it, or nails on the bottom of it, to help them grip and not be pushed away. But also they wore greaves up to their knees, which protected them from injuries to that part of their body. The bottom line is, he says, we need to put this on, and he describes it as the gospel of peace. And again, I've heard people say, well, what he's talking about is always be ready to preach the gospel. No. Romans 5.1, he says, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what is the gospel of peace? The fact that I have been justified by faith, not by my works. That I, my relationship was based upon this faith encounter that I've had with God, and I placed my faith in Jesus, and as a result, I have peace with God on the inner man. You know, they used to put uh, canaries in, in mines to be able to, watch, to, you know, to protect them against poisonous gases because, I mean, the canary drops dead, you know that you're, you're the next bird to go, so get out of the mine. And, and I think the lack of peace in our life is like one of those mine canaries. It's, it's, an, it's an alarm that God puts in our souls that when I don't have peace, I really need to step back and enter into an intercommunion with God saying, why don't I have peace, God? Because God says I have peace. Jesus said, my peace I give to you. He repeated it in John 14. He said it again in John 16. I give you peace. So why is it that maybe right now you're sitting here and saying, but I don't have peace in my heart? I have concluded, at least for myself, because of the way I define what that peace is. See, I define peace as the way it's often used in Scripture and usually in our conversation, a tranquility, a, 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 a stability of things so that everything is at ease. There's no conflicts. There's no difficulties. Everything is going my way. Well, if you base peace upon the idea that things are flowing as you think they should according to the schedule that you've sketched out and all the rest, within budget and below if possible and all the rest, well, then you're not going to have much peace in your life because you're going to find that life never operates that smoothly. So what was Jesus talking about? What Jesus was talking about is what He displayed on the cross. As He is hanging from the cross, pierced and wounded and beaten, and berated. And he says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He's not doing what men usually do when they were in that position. When we hear about the, the thief who was cursing and complaining and blaming and accusing and all the rest, 
That's what men did on the cross. We have records of what men did. They did everything in the world to escape what they were in. They had no peace. They were in torment. That was the idea. And here Jesus is hanging there in peace. And that's why the centurion said, surely this is the Son of God. Because he's not doing this the way people do this. He had perfect peace. Do you get the point? He says, peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you, because what it gives you peace when everything is going the way you want it to. I give you peace, a peace, he said through Paul, that passes human understanding. I give you my peace, peace with God. And so one of the things I have to step back and say, am I shod with the peace of God? Because you know it's interesting, he describes it as being part of the footwear, because the reality is, you know, so you can tell when somebody has peace by how they walk. Watch somebody who's troubled and tormented and they carry themselves as a burdened soul. Watch somebody who has peace in their heart. Their shoulders are square, their head's up. Their eye meets you face to face. They have confidence. He said, you need to have that peace. But fourthly, he said, you need the shield of faith. What is the shield of faith? It's interesting because here again in, in Psalm 3.3, he says, You are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. It's the realization that, God, you are the source of my protection and my prospering. It's not me. See, when we put the burden to perform on ourselves very quickly, we're going to find that we're not up to the task. And that's where the fiery darts begin to fly. The enemy says, who do you think you are? What do you think you're accomplishing? You know, and you begin to just take all these wounds, these fiery darts, and you're, before long, you're just defeated and discouraged. He says, no, lift up the shield of faith. And what does the shield of faith say? <laughs> Buddy, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's not, it's not, I'm not going to win anything. Jesus is going to win everything. He's going to the ones who overcome. And you're going to have to deal with him. And, they, and those darts hit that shield, and they just get extinguished. They go out immediately. The fifthly, he says, put on the helmet of salvation. Thessalonians, Paul wrote, he said, wearing as our helmet the confidence of our salvation. What is the helmet? He defines it. It's the confidence that I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. That's the confidence that the work has been finished, as Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. He's done it all. I know that I'm secure, not only in time, but I'm secure in eternity because Jesus has me. And he says, keep that in your mind. Don't ever let that get pulled out of your brain. Don't start believing that you're on this fragile razor edge, that if you tip this way or that way, you are done. No. As my pastor used to always say, you would not, worry, you would not grip on to Christ so hard if you realized how tight a grip he has on you. He said, you would just let go, relax, and enjoy the journey. And then sixth, he said, whip out the sword of the Spirit. What is the sword of the Spirit? He tells us, it's the Word of God. But I love by the way the writer of Hebrews describes the Word of God. He says, it's a living and it's an active Word of God. And here's where I think sometimes, we, again, we get confused. We think that I'll just memorize a lot of Bible scriptures and, and, and then when I need them, I'll pull them out and I'll kind of throw them like hand grenades against whatever's coming at me and I'll blow all these things away and I'll be okay. No, it's, it's more than that. It's, it, I, please, don't misunderstand me again. <laughs> Read your Bible, know your Bible, memorize the verses, be, let it become part of your DNA because you will not lose it. But that's the point. If it's part of my DNA, it's something that expresses itself without me having to think about it. It's just ingrained in me. You know, one of the advantages I had when I first got saved, I, I, I was living in a, in a Christian commune. I mean, we're talking commune with a big C. I mean, total commune, all capitals. I mean, everything was shared equally. I mean, I had one pair of jeans, and we all ate from the same table, and we all worked together, and we did everything together. I didn't stay long. I was only there five years, but... Um, <laughs> You know, 16 guys living in one bedroom. It was tight. Uh, but the whole point was that we had no TV. We had no radio. We didn't take the newspaper. Uh, I read one book other than the Bible in those five years, and I don't remember what it was. But it was Christian. <laughs> what did I do? I read the Bible. The first week I was there, I read the New Testament. Second week I was there, I read the New Testament. Third week I read the New Testament. Fourth week I read the New Testament. Fifth week I read the New Testament. Sixth week I read the New Testament. And I thought, I probably should read that Old Testament too. And I started that process. It took me a whole two months to get through the Old Testament. And when I did that, 
Now I've been around there three months, I, so I just went back and started in Genesis and started reading back and forth. And over the years, I've read cover to cover, cover to cover. I do at least once a year, sometimes two to three times a year, just because that's what I do. And you know what happens when you start doing that? Not only do you start to understand it, but it starts getting into your, the crevices of your brain, and you just think about things from that biblical perspective. Now, I, you know, most of you know I'm a pretty avid reader. I read just about anything that has print on it. But nonetheless, that, everything becomes interpreted based upon what's there, what's in the Scriptures. It reminds me of a story I heard once of a, a family who their elderly mother had passed away, and as the family gathered to kind of sift through her worldly remains, uh, they came across her Bible, and they opened it up, and next to a various passages were two letters, T-P, and they tried to figure out what in the world that meant, and eventually they asked the next-door neighbor, who was also their, their mom's closest friend, what in the world does TP stand for? And she laughed and said, oh, it's simple. Tried and proved. In other words, she had taken those scriptures and said, you know, I'm going to claim that as God's truth. I'm going to try it and let God prove to me that it's truth. And that's how it gets into you. That's the kind of thing he says, when you take the sword of the Spirit, you're not pulling out something that you just found and isn't it shiny and nice. You're talking about something that you know how to use. You have used it. You know how to use it. You've used it in the fights of your life and you found that God's Word is true. Which brings us to the very last and the seventh thing that he says. Prayer. In Ephesians 6, he says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer. Always keep on praying. Six times he uses the word prayer. <laughs> pray, 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 because the reality is that prayer is the foundation upon which everything else rests. Every step in this process is involving prayer. Why is it so important? What prayer does more than anything else, and it's most basic, essential element, if I will, what it says to us, is that I'm looking to God for the answers and not to myself. When people pray, you say, well, I just don't believe that God's going to hear my prayer. Well, that doesn't mean you shouldn't pray anyway. Pray in all the unbelief you've got because even in the act of doing it, something happens in your heart where you start looking to God. And the best part is you can pray without believing and then when God answers your prayer, you start believing. God will do that for you. The enemy of your soul is terrified every time he says, he sees you pray. Even when you're sitting, you know, on the subway, or the train, the bus, the, the car, and you just start praying. I mean, I do it when I run. And when I go running every morning, I, I just pray. Thankfully, there's not many people around because they would think I'm completely, they think I'm crazier than they already think I am. But I just, because it's like he's there and he can be talked to, but he just says, pray, 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 pray. You'd think after 45 years as a Christian, I would have got this down years ago, but I, I feel like I'm learning it for the first time in new ways, that instead of trying to fix things, I'm trying to fix my eyes on Jesus. Amen. Just pray. <laughs> Just turn to Him, Lord, I don't know the answer. I didn't see this coming. I don't know how to fix that. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know how to get around this thing. I don't know. You know, too many years, I was Mr. Fix-It. But I found that God's a better fixer than I am. Pray. That's what it means to be diligent. And that's what it feels like to be 8 minutes and 46 seconds over. <laughs> Let's pray. Father God, Lord of heaven, Master of the universe, lover of our souls, Savior, King of our lives. We ask God that you would help us to learn how to be both diligent about the right things and vigilant against the wrong that the enemy will try to bring against us and hinder us. Convince us, Lord, in the end that the worst thing we can do is cut and run. The worst we can do, as Mike Tyson said, is to freeze and become afraid Help us instead, Lord, respond by faith 
To do as Nehemiah said, if the first plan isn't working, let's just change course, but let's keep on going to the same objective. Let's just keep on moving forward step by step. Help us not to give up. Help us not to give in. Help us not to surrender or run in fear. But instead, Lord, let us do, as Moses said, to stand still and behold the salvation of our God, to allow you to fight our battles, you to claim our victories, as you teach us to rely upon you and not upon ourselves. Help us, Lord, to be able to put next to these things TP, tried and proved. In Jesus' name, amen. Many of you know the drill, but if you're new, you're a visitor, whatever, uh, we usually go into an extended time of worship after the teaching for a very simple reason. We feel and, uh, that we need to have an opportunity to respond to what God may have spoken into our lives. And I don't know what that is or how God reaches individuals, but the truth is, unless I really step back when God has spoken to me and say, God, help me to make this truth in my life. Help us to become anchored in my soul in a way that it becomes transformational. And so we, we, we just continue in worship because it's easier than sitting here in silence. But nonetheless, either way, it would be great because you sing along, that's great. If you want to be silent, that's great too. The, really, the issue isn't that we're trying to perform up here to get you to do something out there. It's about just stepping back for a moment and allowing the Holy Spirit to speak into our lives. We have the elements of communion, which we invite you to partake of every week. But I would just simply say that what these elements represent or should represent to us is everything that really I've been talking about this morning. Jesus gave his body for us that we might respond by giving our bodies to him, heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. He poured out his blood to cleanse me from my sins, cleanse you from your sins, because we have no way of getting free from the guilt and shame that sin causes in our life. And every time we do this, Paul said, not only do we remember the Lord's sacrifice, but we also, we honor him. And so as we take these elements, we're coming here to honor the Savior and to make these things, to appropriate everything they mean into our lives once again. So they become living, living realities inside of us. God, I give you my life because you gave me yours. And, and, and I live with a clean conscience today, not because I'm a good guy, but because you're a good God who forgives sinners of their sins. And when we come with that heart, there's an expression of holiness. If, that, if that's not in your heart, if you're in a place where you're wrestling with God and you don't want to give in, probably stay away from the, the snacks, you know. It's, it's, the Bible says you shouldn't do it. It's not good for you. Because you make, now, knowing what you know, you're really just kind of mocking God. And He will hold you accountable for that. But if you come with a heart of faith to do this, then God says, I meet you in a wonderful way. Let me meet you in a wonderful way. Let me begin to implant my truth in your life in a way that it becomes part of your DNA and you start walking with me because you have the Spirit of God living in you. So come and respond to God. If you need prayer, there's some of us we up here in front who are glad to pray with you. Or maybe you just want to tap the shoulder of the person next to you and say, would you pray with me right now? Because I'm going to let you in on a little secret that as a pastor, I'm not supposed to tell you. They may take my license away. God hears your prayers as fast as he hears mine. There you go. The mystery's gone. <laughs> but it's true. Let's honor God. Let's seek God.